From Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company Liquidnet, coming to you live on tape from New York City. Joining me from Brooklyn is Imogen Rose Smith, an investment fellow with the University of California. Hello, Imogen. <laughs> Hi, Brian. And joining us from Impact Alpha's world headquarters in the San Francisco Bay Area is David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha. Hi, David. Hey, you guys. Well, David, Imogen, in late October 2018, the Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investment, known as USCIF, released their biannual report measuring the size of the impact. By their calculations, responsible and impact investments now total a whopping $12 trillion in the U.S. alone. That figure represents a quarter of all U.S. assets under professional management and is a 38% increase since 2016, the last time they released a report. David, the numbers in this report appear extremely promising. Can we take them at face value? Well, I think directionally, as you say, it's it's extremely interesting, right? I mean, the fact that so many assets now have at least, as they say, cons- consideration of ESG factors, environmental, social, and governance factors, you know, means that the conversation, you know, is is well underway. What I think listeners need to understand is that that does not mean, first of all, that all twelve trillion is screened for all of those ESG factors. It means they're screened for for any one of them. And second of all, that, you know, simply screening out certain investments, whether it's, you know, weapons or tobacco or climate, you know, issues does not mean that you've proactively moved towards impact, what we would call impact investing. And in fact, the same report showed that only $84 billion um, is under you know actually proactive impact investing, so a tiny fraction of that twelve trillion. The eighty-four billion uh, listeners will remember you know does seem to track more or less with the two hundred and twenty-eight billion in impact investing assets that the Global Impact Investing Network found earlier in the year, um, which was a global number. This is a U.S. number. So, in any event, the the impact investing universe is still tiny. This screened universe is obviously much bigger, but but perhaps a more kind of dilute impact. So Imogen, $12 trillion in the U.S., what's the proper context for these numbers? And do they matter? <laughs> um, so I, I can be grumpy about this or I can be positive about this. The, the sort of the, the institutional investor snob in me would tell you that these numbers don't matter an awful lot. So you went for grumpy. Yeah, well, let's go. Yeah, let's go. Give us the case for Grumpy. Give it. <laughs> well, I, I, I thought I'd stay on brand oh, okay. and then surprise you guys <laughs> with, with, with some with with, with with some some more positive views. Um, so so you know, the the struggle the U.S. SIF has is that you know they've been doing this for sort of many 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 years, and, and they are very highly regarded and thoughtful in the work that they do. But they come at it from what is really a what we, what we call socially responsible investing. It's historically been largely mutual funds or organizations such as religious institutions that have certain values that they need to or want to screen for, right? So tobacco-free is the obvious one, right? So, you know, the University of California, due to legislative and reg- due to requirements that are imposed upon us and other California, large California pension plans screen out tobacco stocks, right? So, so we would qualify for screens just purely on that. 
It doesn't mean that we, we are looking at it for economic perspectives or any other reasons. We're just doing it for because we have a governance mechanism that's in place that tells us that is what we need to do. Yeah, it's a, it's a basic governance or regulatory mandate. Exactly. So so it it doesn't, and, and so, so to, the, to the extent that you're capturing assets that do that and that alone, it's not saying that all of this money buys into the sort of sort of deeper conversations around ESG or impact investing. Um, so, so a lot of what is being captured here is again stuff that's either being required to screen for certain reasons, or you know a lot of it is sort of mutual funds and individual investors who are making ethical choices with their money. Um, and this is where my institutional snob kicks in. That is not you know institutional investors don't look at the world that way. And and there is a sort of knee jerk reaction, particularly from university endowments and other sort of investors who consider themselves to be sort of sophisticated investors following modern portfolio theory saying you don't look at the investment universe like that because quote unquote you are taking money off the table for non-financial reasons now the interesting thing to watch there is obviously climate change because increasingly that's where the conversation changed because when people started saying well hold on there are economic reasons to be concerned around climate change and that became very compelling, and you saw investors start to change their thinking around what the role of screening might be. So it tells you that there is a, an increasing awareness of these kind of issues by a whole group of investors. But it doesn't necessarily tell you that all of these investors are considering these factors as germane and central to their investment process. And it doesn't tell you that they are thinking about, you know, what we spend a lot of time talking about, which is, you know, how do we shift capital to supporting these border goals and these border issues, or what are the economic ramifications of that? That so, said, so, so that's my sort of, that's my glasses half full grumpy analysis. That said, I think what is... What I, is by the way, I think it would be the glasses half so, empty. Sorry, half empty, exactly, sorry. <laughs> Um, that said, I think two things are compact. Oh, and by the way, the, the thing to keep an eye on is how much in sort of education assets are engaged in this, right? Because that tells you sort of how much is this a factor among what we consider typically the sort of thought leaders amongst institutional investors. And what you'll see is, you know, of the, what is that, 5.6 trillion that they're tracking in institutional investor capital, only 6% of that is coming from the education universe. And by education universe, you mean the endowments of uh, large exactly. uh, university systems? Student movement has made a real impact in terms of those endowments having to at least think about this stuff, even if they're not screening for it. And I would say that is one of the really positive takeaways from this. And again, if you look, look at the chart and look at the timelines of where the j big jumps are, they coincide with activism campaigns. So activism makes a difference. Stakeholder engagement makes a difference. And it is starting to wake up both institutional investors and retail investors to think about these kind of issues. And I would say that is a huge positive. And I also think that the, the general trend towards retail investors caring about these issues more is, is very compelling. And you are, as you'll know, starting to see much more sophisticated products and much more 
sort of diversity in terms of how people can invest and care about their values. And I think that is a big change and that is incredibly positive. So David, as Imogen said, that this is a very well-respected report for the, the data that it puts out. Um, but uh, how, who is the audience for this report? How, how are people supposed to act based on this report? Uh, like right now, they claim that one in four dollars in the U.S. that are professionally managed are invested in a way that uh, the managers that are investing those those assets apply various environmental, social, and governance criteria in their investment analysis and, and uh, portfolio selection. But what if it was 100%? What would the world look like then? It, would it look different from what it does today? Well, you know, I think, I, I think as Imogen was starting to say, the next stage of this is to understand ESG, again, environmental, social, and governance, as in effect risk factors that institutional investors and, and all investors, retail investors as well, need to understand, you know, both as true risks, i.e. in the world, you know, oceans rising, snow caps melting, but also as investment risks. So as Imogen said, you know, climate risk has become more well understood, if not yet acted upon. I mean, look at, you know, $3 trillion in managed assets now assessed against climate change risks. I mean, out of $46 trillion, you know, at this late date, only $3 trillion is being assessed against climate change risks. What would happen if $46 trillion was actually assessed against against climate risks? Uh, you would actually see, you know, the valuations of oil companies, for example, plummeting under the sort of whole stranded assets theory that uh, that that oil is never going to get burned. You know, we've we've been writing recently on Impact Alpha about risks of of income inequality, right, and social upheaval as a function of um, of increased income inequality and people's livelihoods under threat in all sorts of ways. So there are kinds of now systemic risks being understood, but this report, frankly, I don't think. Fully, uh, I don't think this report quite gets at that yet. So I think the next stage of this discussion is not just, you know, did you sort of screen out tobacco or did you screen out one thing or another, but are you actually looking at the long term risks that face your portfolio and then shifting your portfolio? And I do think, I, maybe we can get to this, I do think that there's a retail investor, you know, um, everyday investor sort of a- analog to this where, you know, people need to be doing this for themselves. So that is a frontier that I think people are, are reaching at. So my my glass half full is this sort of sets up that deeper conversation, but I don't think we're, I don't think this report, you know, sort of yet reflects really that deeper conversation. But I'm not sure, in a way, I disagree with you, right? In that, like, I'm I'm not sure that the the audience in the sense that this report is trying to reach or, or the, and the, sort of the, the core of what this report does well is not necessarily trying to reach that deeper conversation. It's much more about sort of an engagement between share owners, their values and the companies that they own, right? So, and some of them, and again, you've, you've seen a real movement by a lot of these investors to, and there was a really, really good report that Divest Invest did a couple of, number of years ago now, um, was sort of sponsored by Wallace Global Funds, written by Josh Humphreys and others, talking about sort of like, how can we move the needle from sort of divestment into engagement and what kind of things can we do? But a lot of these investors aren't trying to get into the weeds of, you know, what is my stranded asset risk? You know, it's much more how can I either sort of vote with my money, I move my money to what my values are, or find a way to engage with these companies and try to make a difference. Like that's the wheelhouse. And to, you know, 
to Brian, your question of like, what if 100% was engaged? You've got to remember, like a lot of these, a lot on the, on the institutional side, a lot of these investors fundamentally do not believe in divestment. So it's not like they're going to start, even as they're, even as they're like screening for these assets, even as they're considering these factors, it's not like they're all suddenly going to decapitalize Exxon. So Imogen, this report's not about the performance of these investments. It's just trying to, you know, calculate the size uh, of, of the of the market, uh, and as you say that you know th- this is largely about retail investors or aggregated retail investors. And, and where do you see uh, this report going to convince more retail investors that they can invest uh, in a way that's responsible, sustainable, aligned to their values, and still have compelling uh, financial returns for the financial goals that they have for themselves? Well, to your point, right? It's it's not talking about financial returns. So, and that again historically has been where a lot of the criticisms from sort of institutional investors have come from that you know by making these ethical decisions you um trade off financial returns and 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 again a lot of these these managers have not historically been considered institutional quality managers what is empowering is that you as an individual can decide to make that trade-off if you want to, or find managers who either outperform or at least don't underperform. And I think something like you know the, the USF report is a really useful education tool for investors who are interested in doing that. And um, David, I know that you guys have recently been talking about what As You So has been doing in terms of looking at sort of values-focused ETFs and considering, okay, do these funds actually sort of walk the walk when you like open up the hood and look at what they're holding? And again, I think I think that those are really useful conversations for individual investors to start having. And, you know, as, as we talk about the shifts to sort of, you know, more millennials, you know, sort of being in charge of their inheritance or even just investing their retirement funds, these questions become more relevant and they start becoming more interesting. And it's no longer just like, well, you're not sophisticated. It's like, yes, maybe you want to prioritize, you know, gender diversity and inclusion and economic outcomes over just like investing in, I don't know, British American tobacco and calling it a day, right? And and maybe you as an individual are smarter for making those choices. David, any, any final thoughts? Well, just to pick up on what uh, Imogen was saying, I mean, the first stage of all this, you know, wh- whether it's it's socially responsible or ESG or impact investing is is know what you own. And it's been very difficult. I, I assume the big institutions have, you know, lots of uh, help in this, but it's been very difficult for retail investors to know what's in these mutual funds um, or ETFs that are basically the mainstay of their 401ks or their IRAs. And um, this As You Sow tool, uh, there's actually five different tools. Um, if you go to asyousow.org slash invest your values, invest hyphen your hyphen values. Uh, so what we did is they, they just put out one on, on gender equality funds. We did what probably the obvious thing is, and we ran the gender equality funds that we knew about. There was a report recently from Veris that outlined about two and a half billion dollars of gender equality funds. We ran them through the the gender equality tool. And lo and behold, some did quite well, but some well-known funds did not score well on gender equality. Gender equality funds not scoring well on gender equality. It turns out that many, you know, fossil-free 
funds are not actually fossil free. So it's becoming uh, incumbent on uh, retail investors to actually go in and screen their own funds and hopefully, you know, tell their fund, you know, providers, whether that's the Fidelities or the Vanguards or the Schwabs of the world, that they need to, um, you know, maybe uh, look more deeply at what's in the, inside these funds. And then uh, that transparency maybe, you know, drives either the fund managers to change the portfolio selections or ultimately drives the companies to change their their practices so that they get higher scores and they, they get into these mutual funds. So there is a process here of transparency, accountability, feedback loops to the original asset owners, whether that's individuals or, or institutions, and then sort of the slow, you know, gears of change, you know, grinding, grinding along. Um, whether that process of change is happening fast enough is, you know, is, is a whole nother question. But, you know, there is value to all of this discussion and all of this transparency that's, that's, that's coming up. I think some of the really interesting stuff to look at as well is the proxy voting data. Right? You've seen a lot more conversations around proxies and what investors, institutional investors are doing with their proxy voting. And um, if you go into the US SIF report, you can see that you, you're seeing an increasing level of engagement, increasing sort of diversity of types of investors getting involved in proxy voting. And the kinds of things that they're interested in are starting to change. So back in 2016, so a lot of pro proxy voting around the, you know, a lot of the shareholder proposals filed were around the exciting topic of proxy access, which is one of the things that's like really important, but really boring. Now you're seeing a lot, you're seeing increasing interest around executive pay, which is a huge deal. Um, you're seeing like increasing interest around corporate proxy activities. So, so once you, once you start. All male boards. Yeah, exactly. Diversity, huge issue. So as you start drilling down into those kinds of things, I think that like that kind of data is actually a lot more powerful and potentially it's going to be a lot more influential over corporations than sort of that top level number of people who kind of have these ESG factors somehow in their investing universe. Well, that sounds like a good place to, to leave it for now. That's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Thank you to David Bank and Imogen Rose Smith. And special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha, providing news and insights for those working to build an inclusive and prosperous future. Find us at impactalpha.com and on Twitter at impactalpha. If you like the podcast, consider telling just two other people about it. You can also leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. If you don't like this podcast, maybe keep it to yourself. Just kidding. We love feedback. Drop us an email at editor at impactalpha.com. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in some sense of the word next time. <laughs>